Hey everyone, it's Allison Gill. This episode of Jack was recorded right before the charges against Donald Trump were unsealed. So please enjoy this episode about the lead up to the charges and the announcement of the indictment. But look for a second bonus episode of Jack later today, where Andy and I will go over the charges. We'll see you then. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, June 11th. Uh, It's the week 28. Okay, 28 weeks in. And um, I'm Allison Gill, your co-host. And I'm Andy McCabe. Allison, a couple of things happened this week. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, a couple of things happened in the last hour. But um, of course, we're talking about the fact that special counsel Jack Smith has indicted former President Donald Trump on seven federal charges in Miami on Thursday night. So we're going to go over what we know about those charges, plus the absolute fire hose of news about the documents case that we've gotten since the last episode. Yeah, 100%. Uh, We learned there was just so much this week. Uh, Grand jury moving down to Miami, a flood in the server room where the Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage was stored. Donald's lawyers having received a target letter for Donald last week, then meeting with Jack Smith in D.C., then quitting, uh, and then some more details about that audio recording of Donald waving the Iran document around during a meeting in 2021. Um, And Andy, I guess the best way to approach this news week is to kind of do it chronologically to what led us up to the charges, and then we can discuss the charges, and then we can talk about the other news that was happening in the January 6th investigation. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, there's just so much. So why don't, why don't we kick it off with, uh, with the target letter? Because that's a big deal. And, um, and, you know, I've been every, everywhere I've been doing appearances and hits, Andy, I always say, look, 999 times out of a thousand, if you get a target letter, you're going to get indicted. I know one guy who got a target letter that didn't get indicted, but I only know the one guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are you are correct about that. I think you've worked the math well. Uh, the target letter is a very sad day for anyone, um, and in this case, that that consistency seems to be holding. Um, now, I think it's you know we hear a lot about these things in different investigations. You know, target letter, and then we hear sometimes people are referred to as a subject of investigation. What's the difference? Basically, anyone can be a subject of a federal investigation if their behavior comes within the scope of the investigation, right? That's a very low standard. That's kind of the official DOJ definition in the uh, DOJ manual. But a target is defined as someone who the prosecutors already have significant evidence of your guilt, and you are essentially a presumptive defendant. You haven't been indicted yet, but everybody is basically presumed that you will get indicted. So that's why when that letter drops, it shows up at your house, you can pretty much count on the fact that you're going to be getting indicted. And not only that, you're probably going to be getting indicted pretty soon because they don't typically send those out until the very end. Yep. And um, shortly after that, the Trump attorneys, the, the lawyer team, the Blunderdome down there, decided to get together and go and meet with, well, first they demanded a meeting with uh, the DAG, the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, and the Attorney General Merrick Garland. And they're like, yeah, no, you're, you can meet with Jack Smith and this other high-level official from the Deputy Attorney General's right. office. Yep. Uh, and so they went and met. And during that meeting, from my understanding and from some reporting, uh, additional reporting from, from Hugo Lowell and from sources at the CNN, ABC, I mean, just reported everywhere, they asked not to indict their client just generally what you do. But they also came up with a little bit of prosecutorial misconduct. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But that meeting happened. But then the New York Times reported that Trump's lawyers met with Jack Smith uh, and a high level official from the from the DAG office. Because, you know, like I said, they wanted to meet with Merrick Garland. No, but you're going to meet with these with the person who's actually running the investigation. And during that meeting, they raised prosecutorial misconduct. uh, And then they also asked the the Department of Justice to not 
indict their client. And uh, this prosecutorial misconduct, Hugo Lowell teased this story out and got the exclusive. Basically what happened is, and I wanted to ask you about this, because this just sounds like a benign conversation to me. Sure. But Jay Bratt called Walt Nauda's lawyer in and said, we need to come and talk to you. Can't be over the phone. They sat him down. Uh, Jay Bratt told him they were going to charge Walt Nauda, his client, with false statements and, and said, we want your client to cooperate. And Nada's lawyer then denied the false statements vehemently. And then at some point in the conversation, Jay Bratt brought up the fact that Walt Nada's lawyer had recently applied for a federal judgeship. And what they're insinuating is that Bratt was somehow trying to coerce Nada's lawyer by saying, uh, maybe hinting like, I can give you a hand with your judgeship application, even though no one at the DOJ has anything, any sway or any way to do anything like that. I think this might have just been, and Hugo Lowell brought up this possibility, might have just been part of a conversation. Yeah. I mean, this is a really strange turn of events or maybe non-events. So in that, um, in those facts you just laid out for us, all the way up to the mention of the lawyer applying for the federal judgeship, Everything before that is totally normal, right? Uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys have these conversations every day in cases where prosecutors are trying to convince uh, defense attorneys to bring their clients in and legitimately cooperate. So all that is totally normal uh, course of business. Now, if, if, and I say this because we don't have any proof of this whatsoever at this point, but if Jay Bratt made this comment referring in some way to the defense attorney's existing consideration for a federal judgeship in the most innocuous, meaningless way. You could imagine him saying something like, listen, you know, this is in the interest of justice. It's the right thing to do to bring your client in. He has important information that's important to a major case. You know, you appreciate how important this case is. I mean, you're somebody who's actually considering being a judge, full stop. Like, that's a reference to the to his um, to his desire to be a judge, but in a, in a, in basically the most uh, innocuous way possible. The other end of the spectrum is he says, "Hey, look, I know you're applying for a federal judgeship, and if you don't bring your client in to cooperate, I'm going to put a kibosh on that application, and you'll never be a judge." That's of course terrible. That sounds very coercive, um, uh, and improper. Either way. This is an element, this is something for the department to investigate, right? They hand this over to the Office of Professional Responsibility in the Department of Justice, and they look into allegations of misconduct on the part of prosecutors. Depending on what they find, maybe it's at the, the, the not-so-bad end, maybe it's closer to the really bad end, they would then take action against Jay Bratt. My point in this long explanation is none of that would result in uh, eliminating or dismissing or ending this case. Because what do we know? We know that this was a conversation with the attorney, not with the actual witness or the attorney's client. We also know that the client is actually not cooperating at this point. So <laughs> there's nothing really happened here except a comment, an alleged comment by Jay Bratt, which honestly... If he said that, it was an impertinent thing to bring up. It was a mistake he should not have. Whether or not he'll be disciplined for it in any way, who's to say? That needs to be investigated. But I think the Trump team throwing this out there as like their first line of defense in this unbelievably significant and serious case is really just a bunch of hot air. It's not going to get them anywhere. Even if it is as bad as they say, it's not really going to have that much of an impact on the case. But it's a convenient thing for them to talk about because honestly, they don't have anything else to talk about here, right? That's what I was exactly what I was going to say. That his defense has been blown. Even the defense of you know declassified with my mind or didn't know I had them. Even though those were blown wide open by the the battle with the Eleventh Circuit, you know, because none of that actually matters. The declassification status of these documents is a red herring, as both the Department of Justice and the Eleventh Circuit said. That was that was their terminology, That's right. and it's such a flimsy defense that he wouldn't officially state it to the court as being a defense. because you know the DOJ asked, "Tell us here in court right now in writing, are you saying you, that these are declassified?" Well, we're not going to use that defense at this time. But that, but his public defense, which, you know, I'm sure he's just trying to get this tried in the public here before it goes to a, a before it goes to court. 
was that uh, he declassified everything was mine. That got blown apart by this audio tape we're going to talk about in a little bit. So he's got nothing left other than prosecutorial misconduct. And that's all that he's going to pound on for days. Yeah. And that fits right into his main kind of uh, approach on everything is to demonize the prosecutors, demonize the FBI, try to point the finger. Oh, look how it's, they're not fair. It's not fair to me. And honestly, it's working. It's working with the people that, that, um, that like him and who follow him and support him. Those people, uh, his supporters on the Hill are all kind of aping that same language today. They're drawing these connections, I guess. It's not actually a connection, but they're comparing this, the announcement of this indictment or the revelation of this indictment yesterday to the handing over of the FBI of some piece of informant information, unvetted informant information that, or unconfirmed informant information about an allegation against Joe Biden years ago. You know, of course, it happened on the same day. They must be connected. It's just nonsense. It's, it's absolute nonsense. And I have to say that in this, the, all the crazy and defamatory and slanderous things that are being said about the FBI, with everything that we know in this case so far, which is a fair amount, right? We've been tw- yeah. 28, 28 episodes in here. There's not a single piece of information, not one, that actually points to misconduct or you know bad conduct or political motivation behind this investigation. Okay, I get it. If you're a hardcore Trump supporter, you don't like this investigation because it makes your guy look bad and it's disappointing. Sorry about that. But there's actually not any facts that support any of these allegations. Like, And the, the idea that the FBI is some hotbed of uh, left-leaning activists who are out to get Republicans, it's just it's absurd. It is, so, from, it is such a conservative place, the FBI. Uh, generally, the culture is very conservative. I, I don't know how people in the FBI vote because you don't really talk about that, but I would strongly uh, uh, guess that many of them vote for Republican candidates. I mean, it, it's just nonsense. And it's, it's getting uh, hard to listen to, but I guess we have to be prepared to hear a lot more of it. Yeah, well, you know, we went through it uh, in the Mueller investigation. We went through it with uh, the Russia, you know, with um, a Crossfire Hurricane and all of the attacks from from the person in the White House at the time against the intelligence community. Uh, it was difficult to it was difficult to watch. Yeah. Um, when all that happened, so uh, it's gonna it's going to happen again. Um, I know they're better prepared for it. We know for a fact that Jim Jordan and Donald Trump and Trump's lawyers were trying to get the names of all of the people on Jack Smith's team. They were trying to get their you know identify them, and Jack Smith was like, "No, you may not." And they keep trying, and 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 it's just because they want to publicly attack these folks. I mean, we saw it. You know, uh, you know better than anybody. What happens to people who investigate uh, the former president of the yeah, United States? Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. And th- and that's what we're going to see happen here. So don't get caught up in the hype, I guess. And our yeah. listeners know that. Always ask yourself, like, what do we actually know? What are the facts that we have that you could base that opinion or that allegation on? And in terms of this misconduct stuff, other than what we've talked about, about this uh, allegation about Jay Bratt and Walt Nauta's lawyer, we haven't heard anything, nothing, zero. So anyway... Yeah, no, I agreed. And, and uh, you know, from people I've spoken to who know and have worked with Jay Bratt, that's not the kind of person that he is. He's a very cool-headed, even-tempered guy. Uh, so um, anyway, we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening. Uh, Hugo Lowell has said that the National Security Division knows about this prosecutorial misconduct allegation, and they take it very seriously, as, they, as anyone should. So it, it will be investigated. It will not kill the case. I, I personally don't think so. And, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you agree. You have a lot more experience on, this, on these things than I do. All right. We have so much more to get. We haven't even gotten to the charges, my friend. So we've got a little bit more to get to. I want to talk about this, uh, this pool party, uh, this potential pool party conspiracy that might have happened. But we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. All right, Allison, here we go. We're going to roll on to the pool party. And this is, um, you know, we're, we're, I'm sure we're going to make a lot of jokes about this as it goes on, but the, but the story is really kind of, uh, kind of amazing. CNN had exclusive reporting that Jack Smith was asking witnesses in the grand jury 
about a pool draining incident. So apparently the maintenance man that helped Walt Nauta move boxes accidentally flooded the server room where the Mar-a-Lago surveillance video was being stored. Okay, <laughs> step back <laughs> two steps here. So maintenance guy who is involved in moving the boxes, shifting the boxes, the uh, you know the the uh, game that was being played with where the boxes are located, also was in charge of draining the pool and just happened to do so in a way that took the water from the pool and put it into the server room. So let's keep in mind, the Washington Post also reported that the same maintenance worker called the Mar-a-Lago IT guy in July and asked questions about how long the surveillance footage was stored and whether or not it was waterproof. No, I added that last part. That's that's not true. I just added that. Well, apparently the servers were not damaged. Uh, yeah. But I mean, there are there are entire industries dedicated to saving data on servers that have gotten water on them. So I'm <laughs> I'm very surprised that this is the, if this if this was not like we have to we have to say this could have just been an accident. It right. could have literally been the same guy who talked to the IT guy about the surveillance tapes that was happening during the pool a few months later, and ha- it happened to the water happened to be accidentally uh, sent to that server room. Could be coincidence. Okay, I'm. Um, uh, I we have to, uh, you know, we just have to say that that's poss- a possibility. But to think that you would be able to destroy this information, it's. <laughs> It's, I mean, it, it's totally consistent with their basic gang that couldn't shoot straight approach to this entire investigation, I, right? right? So it could have been an accident. It seems not to have been significant because no one is actually saying that, oh, yeah, this is where this data was. Now it's no longer accessible because of the flood in the server room. In fact, they're saying, as you said, uh, that the servers weren't even damaged. So I, I kind of, I love talking about it because it's hilarious but it's probably not really a thing in the overall kind of, uh, you know, spectrum of this case and, and so many significant developments that we have seen and heard about. At the end of the day, this is, a, I, I see it as more of just kind of like a can you believe it sort of anecdote. Yeah. And, and by the way, we should talk about kind of what went on during that, you know, that whole moving of the boxes situation, because we just found out, um, Andy, that that Walt Nauta has been indicted alongside Donald Trump. This news is breaking pretty much right this second as we are recording this. And so now, you know, that we know that the maintenance guy, because here's here's my thought, right? Maintenance guy has his own lawyer, John Irving. Walt Nauta and Taylor Budowich and Kosh Patel and a few other people, some Oath Keepers, Kelly Meggs, all share a same lawyer. And now both of these lawyers, John Irving and Stanley Woodward, I think his name is, I can't remember, okay. are both paid for by the Trump Save America PAC. Um, but it's it's of note, I think, that we have a Walt Nauta indictment and not a maintenance man indictment that we know of for, you know, because they don't have the same lawyer. You can't really share a same lawyer if one person is cooperating against the other. So this t- kind of tells me that we might have a cooperator in this maintenance man. Um, but again, this is all speculation. We don't really know. Um, it's not like he switched lawyers at the last minute. That's usually an indication that somebody is cooperating if they're if they're sharing a lawyer with somebody they're about to flip on. We saw it happen in Fonnie Willis's case with the with the um fraudulent electors. But, you know, Walt Nada is caught on that surveillance footage, moving boxes. Uh, at least we know back into that storage room the day before they have Corcoran go and search through it and or, or or excuse me the day before they have the FBI come down to retrieve the documents Corcoran had searched for in that room. Yeah, not as on the video moving the boxes around. He's mm-hmm. also the guy who knew exactly the time and place that Corcoran was going to search. He's the guy who gave Corcoran access to the boxes. He had allegedly, he had the key to the room and Corcoran had to go to him before he could get in. So he's in a very curious spot there. Now you layer on top of that what we know about his efforts to cooperate. So he did come in and was interviewed 
um, under the pretense of cooperating with the government. But we know that that ended when the government determined that he had misled them. So he has, you know, he tried to cooperate, didn't really work out. Sounds like the government put more pressure on him, more maybe even including this alleged conversation about the judgeship. And ultimately, he decided not to cooperate. We had heard through a lot of reporting in the last few weeks that his attorney had basically cut off all contact with DOJ. So that's a good sign that this thing has not worked out. Now, I will. I but will that s- sounds like the dumbest thing to do, though. I mean, you know, because, yeah. which makes me really question the, the not just because he's being paid by the Trump Save America PAC, but the integrity of this lawyer or, or, or his knowledge. It's really. Uh, This is like Cooperator 101. When you bring someone in who's facing exposure in the case you're investigating, and you're trying to get them to cooperate on some more significant target, and they can, and they decide, okay, I'm going to come in. That's called a proffer session. the the subject The subject of investigation comes in with his or her lawyer, and he sits down with two, typically two FBI agents and the line prosecutor. And at the very beginning of that meeting, the the this the terms of this agreement are very clear. It is, you have to tell the government everything you know about not just the questions they have for you about this case, but any other criminal activity you might have been involved in. And if we determine you are both useful and truthful, then you can get what's known as a cooperation agreement, which which would basically say you agree to plead guilty to some one of the crimes that you've, you know, you've admitted you were involved in, in return for the prosecutors requesting at the end of the whole procedure, when you're ultimately sentenced on the one thing you pled guilty to, prosecutors will ask the judge to downwardly depart on your sentence, so sentence you to less than what you deserve. The problem is, if at any point in that process, the prosecutors and the agents figure out that you're lying and you haven't gone all the way in and fully committed to telling the truth, you're hosed. You get no deal, you get no agreement, there's no easy plea, and there's certainly no sentence reduction later. And the prosecutors can then use everything that you said in the pro- in the proffer uh, sessions against you if you ever take the stand. So to come in and not go and to do it, but not do, do it all the way or not do it well enough to actually get a cooperation agreement is the dumbest thing you can possibly mm-hmm. do. And the prosecutors will tell you that at the first meeting, like, if you're not going to really do this, if you think you can lie to us, just get up and walk out right now because it's really going to hurt you in the long run. And that may be what happened here to Walt Nauta. Yeah, maybe because we know he came in and said, I didn't do anything. And then they confronted him with some video uh, footage and said, yeah, you did. And then he told him, Trump told me to move those. And then he clams up, you know. Yeah. And if it weren't for the clam up and full, full on investigation where he, you know, maybe becomes a target now instead of a, a subject or a witness... Now we find the text messages, uh, his text messages. We get all this other information. We find out uh, about uh, uh, the conversations that he had with uh, Donald Trump, perhaps. So now we're in, had he cooperated, the the case might not be as strong as it is. But you never know. It might be, it might be stronger. He could have given some yeah. information that they had no idea about. That's just how, you know, that's just how the cookie crumbles. Who knows? Listen, had he cooperated, maybe we never get to the maintenance worker. But the problem for him is he didn't cooperate. He's not cooperating. He just got indicted. And now they have maybe, we don't know this for a fact, but maybe that maintenance worker is cooperating and you're getting, you know, 80, 90% of what you needed from NADA. You're now getting from this maintenance worker who's even less culpable. He's even lower on the food chain. So that's a good thing for the prosecutors. Now, I will say it's always possible to cooperate after you've been indicted. It's a little harder. The benefit to you as a defendant is not quite as rich. But nevertheless, sometimes it takes an indictment for some defendants to wake up and realize, "Uh uh-oh, I really need to get on the government side here if I'm going to have the best result for myself. That could still happen. Nod has been indicted. He may decide to, um, to change his mind about cooperating. But if he does then the government is stuck with a problem because he's lied to them in the past, which means if you use him as a witness, you have to expose to the jury that he's all one, he's lied to the government before, which raises the question of he might be lying to the jury now. So it's hard to rehabilitate a cooperator who you have already proven lied to you in the past. It's not impossible, but it is tough. 
and it requires a jury that's going to be very forgiving. But looking at these charges, I don't know that the DOJ necessarily even needs this guy as a cooperator anymore, Not at least not Walt Lauda, um, because these are some very serious, this conspiracy uh, to obstruct is under 1512, and we'll talk about that in the next uh in the next segment, but these are serious charges. We're talking about 20-year maximum sentence charges. Um, false statements carry a five-year maximum sentence. We're going to talk about all of these individual um, title and codes that, that were uh, reported by ABC News. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, I had mentioned the same lawyers for, you know, that, that uh, Stanley Woodward guy. I hope I'm getting that name right. I'm sorry. I'm doing it off the top of my head. Um, somebody I'm sure will uh, send in a, a correcting email if I if I'm getting it wrong, but that you know it this lawyer was shared by Kosh Patel, Walt Nauda, and of course Taylor Budowich. Now Taylor Taylor Budowich testified in Florida this week. Um, he talked about a letter that Trump wanted to release uh, in 2022, saying I've given everything back to the archives, but. Apparently, Taylor Budowich didn't feel comfortable releasing that statement. And there were many, several Trump aides who weren't comfortable releasing that statement because they didn't believe it was true. So they asked him about that. And that's interesting because I thought for a second that maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe they were just questioning Taylor Budowich and, uh, you know, Walt Nauda and everybody because these lawyers are paid by the Save America PAC. And maybe this was probably part of Jack Smith's probe into Trump's super PACs, because that's a separate investigation that's going on right now. I mean, it's tied to it's tied to all of them, but it's another track that he's looking at. Uh, But then he was asked about that document. And then, Andy, we learned that Jay Bratt and a guy named Harbach were down there uh, in Miami on Thursday, uh, on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, it was the prosecutor, it was Harbach, but no witnesses were going in and out of the grand jury room. And that led us to sort of wonder, are they voting on a true bill today? Because the independent UK paper said that they were going to be voting on a true bill on Thursday, but that we were going to be doing it in D.C. And no other U.S. outlet was picking up that story. So either they just accidentally got the Thursday right or they had the Thursday right. It was just a wrong venue and <laughs> nobody else could corroborate, corroborate. In the, um, in the crossfire of media sources, it's like never ends. But right. yeah, I, I, that was really fascinating watching that all day yesterday. We're all trying to decode, you know, I don't, I think most of us didn't really understand the significance of, of a grand jury in Miami until we heard about the appearance by Taylor Budowich the day before. Um, so it raised this question of like, wow, what are they going to, what, what's going to happen here? Who's going to indict the case? Um trying to figure that out. In my calculation, I thought, you know, it may end up going in Miami, but probably not for a while because you think about all of the witnesses that we have seen appear in D.C. We know testified here in D.C. based on the privilege litigation and everything else. That's a ton of information that has to be basically put in front of the Miami grand jury. You can do that. Yeah, because we we learned this week that just this week from the New York Times, it was kind of buried in the story that 20 Secret Service agents, maybe a little more than 20 Secret Service agents, had testified to the D.C. grand jury in the documents case yeah. in recent months. I mean, there's just a lot that you have to bring in all the staff members and all the Secret Service folks and everybody. So yeah. it's it's a it's lot a, of info. It's a ton. And all, of the, all the transcripts of all the testimony has to be given to the new grand jury. A lot of it is read to them. So those are these are processes that take time. And I think we were assuming, because we just learned about the Miami grand jury, it must be fairly new. I think actually what happened is they've probably been doing that for weeks, very yeah. quietly, um, off the, you know, off the radar, so to speak. And so they were actually, they were in a position to get a vote yesterday uh, and one that, you know, really surprised us in terms of timing. Yeah, it was. It was because I was in the car driving home. It was about 7.30 p.m. on Thursday night. And I get the, the ding on the phone. And it's it's Donald posting to Truth Social that he has been indicted in the, the box's hopes, yeah. <laughs> um, which is his new name for this uh, documents case. And so <laughs> then I start looking around. Okay, because and all NBC reporting. Donald says he's being indicted. Right. Donald says he's being indicted. And I remember what happened when Donald said he was being indicted the last time. He said, Tuesday, I'm going to be. And it was wrong. Uh, so I was trying to be skeptical 
about what Donald posts on Truth Social. Uh, but then the reporting started to come in closer to 8 p.m. Uh, and that's when, you know, we all put out our official um, reports that, that Donald had been indicted. Um, yeah. Now, I, it, yeah. I finished up a hit at CNN. Um, I'm trying to remember how this actually worked. I think I was on the 6. I had a couple of blocks in the front of Wolf's show at 6. I probably got out of there about 6.30. I uh, hadn't, you know, I was going to stay if the indictment happened, but it hadn't happened by then. Nobody thought it would. So I drove all the way home, which is is a bit of a haul for me. And I, I was in the house maybe 10 minutes. And I look up at the TV and it's like, Donald Trump's been indicted. Sure enough, phone <laughs> rang. And they're like, can you please get in your car immediately and come back in? So I just turned around, went back in and and stayed till midnight. But yeah, it was, um, it's been kind of a, well, it's been a crazy week on a, on a lot of ground. So, um, so that resolves the whole Miami versus DC venue issue as well, which I think is really fascinating. I think this is another example of an issue that the prosecutors have probably really been suffering over for months, probably a lot of research, a lot of conversations, a lot of high level meetings to determine where to bring this case. And just to go through the math of it a little bit, obviously, in terms of jury pool, if you're a prosecutor, you want the case in D.C. I mean, D.C. voted overwhelmingly for Biden. So just that indicator alone says you're more likely to get jurors who are uh, who have a negative um, you know, uh, opinion about, about Donald Trump. So that's, that's a positive of D.C. There are, in terms of where venue is, of course— I'm sure everyone knows the Constitution requires when you're charged with a federal crime, you have to be charged in the place where the crime happened. Um, now, that's a little bit vague, right? If it's a crime that occurred over a long period of time and multiple acts, there, there are questions about what does where it happened mean where it started or where it finished. And there's no really clear answer to that. You just kind of have to feel through each case uh, on the facts. There is a good argument to say that the crime of taking the documents, uh, knowingly and intentionally taking documents you shouldn't have taken, started here in D.C., and the taking being moving them to Florida. That is con- uh, made a little bit more complicated by the fact that Trump left D.C. early. If you remember, on the day of uh, Biden's inauguration, rather than sticking around and doing the handoff that every other president has ever done, uh, Trump just got out of town. He gave that little speech at the airport uh, out at um, Andrews and got on the on uh, Air Force One and left. So technically, by leaving before he, before Biden was sworn in, Trump was still president, which could have raised an issue in this uh, criminal litigation about well. He was actually still president at that moment when he left. So it wasn't an unlawful taking because as president, he still had lawful access to all those documents. So there is that. The other problem of D.C. is the D.C. district has some legacy cases that have had um, not great rulings on this issue of venue, venue choice by prosecutors. And finally... There is a current Supreme Court case that really changes uh, changes the outlook on this. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, so if prosecutors uh, bring a case somewhere on a theory of venue that is later proven wrong, typically the remedy for that is the case gets dismissed, but then the prosecutors can reindict the case in the correct venue. So uh, there's this is a little bit complicated because. You could lose the venue motion as a prosecutor either during the trial on a jury determination because it is actually a question for the jury, or you could lose it on a motion hearing, right? The defendant files a motion and then the judge decides whether or not you're in the right venue. Well, this Supreme Court case may just change the remedy in a fundamental way. The case was argued a few weeks ago. It has not been decided yet, but it is possible that this Supreme Court will decide that the proper remedy when a prosecutor brings a case in the wrong venue is complete dismissal with prejudice, which means you can never reindict that case. 
So Mm -hmm. that's another thing that the Jack Smith team has been thinking about. And I think when you stack all those risks up on top of each other in like a big risk sandwich, it just becomes too big to swallow. Even though you're likely to get a less favorable uh, jury in Florida, and even though you probably have not as good a judges to pick from in Florida, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, <laughs> um, the prosecutors are probably like, you know what? That's the really the proper venue. That's where the most of these actions took place, certainly where the obstruction took place. There's no venue challenge there whatsoever. Let's just bring it in Florida. And, that, and that's what they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I and we'll take a look at these charges. We're going to take a quick break. And, and I want to talk about uh, uh, the venue and the judge uh, as soon as we take this break. We'll be right back, everybody. Stick around. All right, everybody, welcome back. So uh, I think it's ABC that was reporting. Everyone's picked it up and corroborated it now that the summons has Judge Eileen Cannon's name on it, along <laughs> with Judge... You cannot make this stuff up. Holy <laughs> cow. With Judge Reinhardt. Mm. Judge Reinhardt is the one who issued the search warrant uh, on Marla. So this is where the original case you know, came from. And I want to talk briefly about... Miami is like two and a half, uh, two hours away from, from Palm Beach. Yes. Um, but... From what my understanding, I talked to um, Dave Ehrenberg, who's the DA down there in Palm Beach. I think what's happening, and he hasn't got confirmation on this yet, but I think what's happening is the grand juries are only meeting in Miami in the Southern District right now, not in Palm Beach. Right. Because of COVID. still They still have restrictions. So that is why the grand jury would be in Miami, because that's the only place in the Southern District of Florida where grand juries are meeting. But... The proper venue would be Palm Beach because that is where Mar-a-Lago is, and that's where this obstruction happened. Um, and so Eileen Cannon. Now, we don't know if it's just the arraignment, the summons, uh, because Donald Trump also put on True Social he has to appear Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern time um, in the court uh, down there. Uh, so we don't know if it's just for this or if she is the judge on this case. But she, but her name is on this summons. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, so we should learn more about this on Tuesday. Uh, I, as I understand it, Palm Beach is a very small federal courthouse. It's kind of um, it's kind of like a, a satellite office of the real federal courthouse in Miami, and there's a very limited number of judges there. Um, I'm not sure that she's the only full bird federal judge. So. You know, no, there's also Judge Middlebrooks who uh, that's right, that's right. Found so that that Trump was judge shopping when he went to look for Eileen Cannon, and I think dismissed that whole case against uh, his lawsuit, and 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 he was the one who put sanctions down for for the Trump lawsuit of you and thirty <laughs> other people. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I think that was Middlebrooks as well. I knew I had um, some connection to that place. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's there's not a lot of judges there. There's probably a couple of federal magistrate judges, which are lower level judges that usually handle things like arraignments and pretrial motions and stuff like that. But so it's a limited pool once you once you figure that that's where you're pulling from. Now, when it comes to like polling for a jury, the jury pool for that district is not just West Palm, right? It's kind of you know they the jury you know jury duty notices go out by the entirety of the district. So I think the pool is probably, I don't know, probably more diverse than the pool that you would get from West Palm. Hard to make any clear, confident assumptions about whether they're Trump-leaning or not Trump-leaning. I mean, that's beyond me, but that's how I understand Uh, Well, this, yeah, the uh, Southern District skews Dem. It skews Dem a little bit. Um, but it's it's certainly not a DC grand jury, yeah. uh, as as you brought up before. Yeah. Um, but uh, and if you remember Eileen Cannon, that was the one who had appointed the special master, got her ass handed to her by the DOJ and the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, very uh, kind of embarrassing. They had to vacate her like uh, twice um, on on things that she decided. So, uh, you know, Joyce Vance is saying on Twitter that there's a possibility that there could be a motion for her to recuse if she doesn't automatically 
Um, uh, she says that uh, the 11th Circuit probably is not going to want to go through this again. The district court there is not going to want this uh, to be done uh, wrongly. So there might be um, a chance for that if she is the judge that's assigned to this case. Um, we will see. We'll see what ends up happening. But that's for now. All we know is her name and Reinhardt's name have appeared on the summons for Trump to to come back in on Tuesday at three. That's really all we know yeah. for now. You know, quite frankly, my biggest concern about Cannon, if she stays on the case, is not this question of bias so much as it is a question of competence. Uh, her yeah. ruling in that in the special master uh, special master lawsuit actually is what it, what it was was just so preposterously wrong, so obviously wrong on so many counts. It was contrary to the current state of the law. It was poorly reasoned. Um, and that's why she got shelled by the appeals court. And if I'm correct, a majority of the three judges, at least two of those three judges, were also Trump appointees, pretty conservative judges who just kind of shut her down. So it's really hard um, for prosecutors and for defense attorneys to have to try a big, important case in front of a judge who's not one of the better judges on the bench, because you can you lose the ability uh, to predict where the judge would rule on any given motion that you're thinking about. Someone who's just kind of a you know loose out there, cannon, right? loose, <laughs> loose cannon, exactly, unpredictable, not really very closely tied to the law, not known for like really well reasoned arguments and things like that. Uh, it just kind of throws the whole thing into chaos, and that ultimately has an impact on how the lawyers make decisions about what sort of issues to bring and what positions to take. And so it's it can really throw a lot of uh, uncertainty into the process, which is not good for anyone. No, 100%. But uh, we'll keep you posted on on what we learn. Um, uh, like you said, we'll probably learn more Tuesday during that arra- arraignment summons, whatever it is. Um, so let's talk about these charges. Let's talk about the indictment of Donald Trump and Walt Nauda, we, as we've just learned. Uh, ABC News lists seven crimes. Now, I want to kind of be clear here. Crimes are not the same as counts. The first reporting we were getting was this was a seven-count indictment. Mm-hmm. Now we're learning it's actually seven statutes that were violated. And some of these statutes, like 793E, well, I'll go over this list here in a second, you can usually get one count per document uh, in, in some of these instances. So there could be multiple counts on any of these instances of the crimes that are listed. So I think we're looking at probably more than a seven count indictment. I don't think that there's going to just be one count for each of these crimes, but who knows? Who knows? We'll see. My guess is it's probably around. If they're bringing in every single document they found, I mean, there could be 300 counts in here uh, unless they, you know, but they group them together so that yeah. they're not, it's not so bulky, um, especially under 793E. But aside from, we'll talk about that in a second, but aside from 793E, willful retention of national defense information, there's 1512K. Now, you know, I've been harping on 1519. Mm-hmm. There's witness tampering obstruction in here. 1512K is conspiracy, conspiracy to obstruct justice. And you'll, I tweeted out last night, friendly reminder, it takes two to conspire. <laughs> and then we get, the Walt, we get the Walt Nada. It uh, takes two if, and one of them can't be a government agent. <laughs> ah, yes. Very good. Uh, 1512B2A, withholding a document or record. 1512C1, corruptly concealing a document or record. Uh, and, and then 1519 is on here, too. That's the concealing a document from a federal investigation. That's the one that we were all thinking of yep. for obstruction in this case. And then 1001A1 and A2. Those are false statements and schemes to conceal. Now, I wanted to ask you about this because this, I was kind of surprised when Jim Trusty, who, by the way, just resigned from the legal team, the latest in a long history and tradition of rotating legal counsels on this case and every other Trump case. Yeah, and he was taught. He told how he told the, someone on the news that there was a fifteen twelve charge in here. Um, as somebody's defense attorney, that just blows my mind. Um, but. You know, we could talk about the the lawyer rotating door blunder dome in a second, but 1512 is about witness tampering. Here's what it says. 
uh, causing another person to withhold testimony or a document. That's B2A. That's 1512 mm-hmm. B2A. So it's not, you know, the way that ABC listed is withholding a document. No, it's actually causing another person to withhold a document or record or testimony. Then uh, C1, 1512 C1, is altering, destroying, mutilating, concealing a record, document, or other object, or an attempt to do so, specifically pool water. No, they don't list pool water. (laughs) With the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding. And maybe I'm reading into the pool story a little too much, but that fits really well. Uh, If they conspired to drain that server room to destroy surveillance tapes and somebody can uh, testify to that that's cooperating, like the guy who did it, because remember, it wasn't Nauda. Yeah. That would be very interesting. But it, it could also be something as simple as concealing these classified records so that they can't yeah. be used against you in a court of law. That's right. Alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in official proceeding. I mean, that could be just as simple as the documents be, moving around that we have on the video surveillance. Could be the Iran document. They, they said that they couldn't find it. Maybe they know that they have it, or they're hiding it, or they destroyed it. Maybe yeah. they, it, could be, it could be so many things, and we're not going to know. It's fun to speculate, but we are not going to know until they unseal that indictment. Yeah. Let's talk about Jim Trusty is out now, and yep. so is the other guy. They're, they're, they're replacing him with, you know, we went over this a little earlier in the week on the Daily Beans, this guy named Todd Blanche. Um, but what do you think? They say they resigned. Um, I'm wondering, because now, I mean, we've been seeing after Parlatore resigned, he's been on cable news blabbing his mouth about this case all the time. And now we've got, like you said, and I know George Conway tweeted about this, how, like, I don't know if people understand how bonkers it is that a defense attorney who is still on a case as he was last night would go on TV and talk about crimes and an indictment that he hasn't seen yet. It's bizarre. It's so crazy. When you're under investigation, you know, of course, your attorney, any any decent attorney would advise you, keep your mouth shut and the attorney would do the same. I get it. This is like the worst client of all time to have to represent Donald Trump. He doesn't ever keep quiet about anything. But that desire to kind of really maintain messaging discipline is is amplified a hundredfold when you know you're going to get indicted. And here we are on the eve of the indictment. They don't know what's in it. They don't know what facts are going to be alleged. They don't know what what actions are going to be um, called out as criminal. And you've got the president's prime attorney, Jim Trusty, on the networks, my, mine included, making these just like incredibly detailed comments about what did or didn't happen and what DOJ did or didn't do. It's just, um, it's totally unnecessary and it's taking all kinds of risks. You're creating risk for your client rather than mitigating risk. And uh, it just, it's crazy to see. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How does it create risk uh, instead of mitigating it? Because it seems to me kind of like when Mike Sherwin went out and started talking about conspiracy, uh, seditious conspiracy charges for Oath Keepers. It seemed like they were honestly just trying to tank the case or give it a really good appeal appealable thing by going yeah. out and talking about charges ahead of time. Um, you know, and I see, I could see some sort of you tainting the jury pool, but it's his lawyers that are doing it. Um, so, you know, I don't, how yeah. does it, how does it, how's it worse for Trump than it is better that these guys are out here blabbing? Well, in the, in the least case, you're going to get your, you, you're not going to go out and talk in any way other than in defense of the client. Right, so you're going to say right. things that are uh, that are going to either explicitly announce or maybe just kind of refer to or echo the actual defenses you're going to use at trial. So you 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 are potentially previewing your defenses for the prosecution, and that is not a good idea. That's strategically just a just a terrible thing to do. You also, um, you know. There was there was a moment in his uh, CNN interview last night when Trusty was asked by Caitlin Collins, you know, what did Trump say 
when you got the target letter? What did Trump say when he realized he's going to be indicted? And Trusty then 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 uh, explained kind of what Trump said about it. You could imagine a scenario in which the lawyer relating what the client said in his presence could potentially violate attorney-client privilege. I mean, what if that if that interaction becomes material in some way? If there later is information developed that, like, you know, Trump made some sort of admission or some factual statement that's relevant to the case, you could you could go in and argue like, well, that's not privileged because Trusty sat on national television and related the conversation. I know that seems a little bit far fetched, but my point is. You don't create any of these risks if no. you just shut your mouth and say no comment. So I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't do that, but um, you, there you go. You know, this is, it's a different problem that they are dealing with, and their problem is they have an irascible, demanding, self-absorbed, imperious client, and yeah. I am quite confident that their marching orders were, uh, you know, get out there and defend me because that's. The only thing that matters to Trump is how things appear on television vis-a-vis him. And I would expect that that order also went to his former uh, attorney, Parlatore, who technically doesn't even work for him anymore, but he's out there doing that. He was on the panel. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's what that's what I said. And now I'm sure that that's what uh, Jim Trustee will be doing as well. Um, But now they've got Todd Blanche. Uh, and and that's all for both. That's for both cases, by the way, or I should say all, because there's there's we know there's like four or five different arms yeah. of this investigation. Uh, but it's going to be Todd Blanche, and uh, we talked about him earlier on the Beans. Um, I guess he's a, he's he's pretty good, like he's probably the most reasonable lawyer that I've whose credentials I've looked at that has worked for this team outside of uh, like Chris Kyes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Blanche is the real deal. And he's got great experience. He has a, uh, from what I understand, a, a, a terrific uh, reputation. I think he's also known as a guy who's not going to get on TV, which is a good thing for that team. I mean, Trump needs a really good lawyer, experienced, integrity, good, you know, trial chops, and someone who's going to conduct himself in a way that's only for Trump's benefit. And he might have found that guy in, in Todd Blanche. Now, on the downside, Blanche also has the Manhattan DA case which is coming up, for, I think it's set for a trial in March, right? Next March. So these mm-hmm. things are going to be in prep, really intense trial prep, basically at the same time. We don't have a trial schedule for this uh, indict, the federal indictment yet, but um, we'll be hearing about that in the next few weeks. So that's a lot yeah, for one and lawyer Florida to goes a lot. Florida goes a lot faster than DC too, because yeah. we don't have the thousand cases of... Uh, Additional thousand cases for, right. for January six going through the same docket. That's right. Down in down in Miami. Uh, all right, we're going to be right back. We still have more. Uh, we still have more stuff to talk about. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back. One last story on the documents case, uh, and then a, another quick one six story will be done. Uh, but CNN today got read the transcript of the audio of Donald waving the Milley document around. Remember the 2021 meeting with the book reporters and the um, the, the aide that was recording? Well, they got the transcript. And I just want to read some of this to you. And I want, I want to get your top line thoughts, uh, Andrew, because here's what here. And this is I, this is this is what he says. OK, I'm reading what his words are. And uh, quote, well, with Milley, uh, let me see that. I'll show you an example. He said, I wanted to attack Iran. Isn't that amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look, this was him. This is in the transcript. He goes on to say, they presented me this. This is off the record, but they they presented me this. This was him. This was Millie. This was the Defense Department and him. We looked at some. This was him. This wasn't done by me. This was him. And then he went on to say, all sorts of stuff. Pages long. Look, wait a minute. Let's see here. I just found this. Isn't this amazing? This totally wins my case, you know? Except it's like highly confidential. Secret. This is a secret information. Look at this. And then he went on to say, I didn't classify this when I was president. I can't declassify it now. Uh, and that's, that is what went in. So it's everything we thought, everything we assumed that went on in that conversation. Now we have the transcript of it. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And 
reading the transcript, it's so much more impactful than it was just talking about it a week ago. Now imagine hearing the tape, which is what the jury's going to get. They're going to get to hear that conversation. That is going to be really a key moment in the trial uh, of this case eventually. But I think it's really important context to know that he's talking to these reporters and he's basically trying to respond to these comments uh, about Millie that came out of a New Yorker article in which Millie allegedly told the author or somebody on Millie's behalf told the author that Millie had had to kind of pull uh, Trump back from the edge of wanting to bomb Iran. And so this whole exchange from Trump is him showing or referring to this document, which in his mind proves the opposite. Like, Millie gave me this document. This document is like the war plan or options for bombing Iran. So therefore, he's a liar, right? He he was the one that was pushing me to go against Iran, not me against him. Whatever. The whole thing is crazy. But while he's making these statements, this stuff that you just read, like, um, they presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. He can be heard on the tape to be like waving or brandishing, showing papers, like a stack of papers in his hand. So that raises the specter that the actual document was there in his hand while he was talking to these uh, people without security clearances at Bedminster. And then, of course, at the very end, he says, look, look at this. So did he show them what was in his hand? Was it the actual document? Because taking that step of actually displaying it elevates this to a much more serious criminal charge. So if this uh, episode becomes the source of one of the criminal charges in the indictment, um, this is very, very damning evidence against the former president. Yeah, I I agree. Um, And it's just, it's always interesting that, um, that these transcripts eventually get to us and we get to see them. Uh, All right. I want to combine listener question with our last story. Uh, how about that? So Sounds if you have great. a listener question, you can send it to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Put Jack in the subject line. And this is from Nancy. And Nancy wants to know about the higher-ups in sedition cases. I would like to know when they're going to be getting the actual plotters and planners, e.g. the Willard Hotel War Room guys, the House members, and Ted Cruz. Um, so I wanted to ask this question because our last story is that now Steve Bannon has been subpoenaed in the Jack Smith January 6th investigation and he was there at the Willard War Room so they he's looking into this but what my question is is why now it seems like it's been a really long time why are they just now subpoenaing Bannon what are your thoughts Andy you know there's the kind of typical um the reflexive answer to that question is they've been working their way up and now they're finally, they've put, you know, they have the the uh, the Lincoln logs in place, the pieces they needed to kind of uh, build toward this moment with Bannon. Other, maybe other witnesses have told them more about what Bannon did or oh, what he said right. or where he was. Because you don't just bring him in. No. You have to get all the evidence for every question that you're going to ask him before you subpoena him. That's exactly right. You, you know, for that moment of finally sitting down and talking to Bannon, who's never going to cooperate, right? He's going to be a very wily, problematic witness. You want to know everything you can possibly know before you sit down with him on the record so that when he starts lying to you, you can confront him with facts and expose the fact that he's lying. So that would be my guess. It's taken them a while to get to a place where they're uh, really ready to sit down and have a, a kind of a confrontational uh, interview with him. Well, at some point he'll be in prison. They, he's wait, <laughs> waiting a four month prison sentence for his criminal contempt of Congress once his appeal is decided. And, you uh, know, so it'll be much easier to schedule because you won't have anything else to do. That's what I'm saying. We know exactly where he's going to be, <laughs> at least for four months. Do you think they'll give him three prison jumpsuits so he can continue to wear his layers? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the layers um, of jumpsuits. I hadn't thought about that, but <laughs> they should. Maybe he'll file a motion that they violated his constitutional right to multiple layered clothing. If they yeah, he yeah. would. That's something I think. Yeah, I can't go to so, jail. I, there's only one jumpsuit. <laughs> 
All right, uh, everybody. Uh, there's going to be a lot more news coming out this week. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we really appreciate it. Again, if you have a question, you can send it to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here on this oh, weekend, Andy? I mean, my mind is a blur. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a lot in the last two, uh, last day or so, and I've got a, a long way to go today. But um, yeah, I think this is, you know, this is really the sort of developments that we've been thinking about for a while. So it's exciting stuff. Um, and we have a lot to talk about, so I'm looking forward to doing it again. Yes, always happy when justice happens. Thank you so much, my friend. We'll see you next week on Jack. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-